Welcome into episode number three of the Sam Levitt Baseball Podcast. Hope you're having a great week wherever you might be listening to this from. It is a very chilly afternoon here in Chicago where I'm recording this from. No, it's a lot warmer out in San Diego where the winter meetings are going on. I hope everybody's having a great time out there. I did not get out there this year, uh, but it is a great event for everybody that goes from the job seekers to the minor league baseball employees, and you never know who you might see and who might be walking through the lobby, all the big news and meetings going on. Really cool event, and I hope everybody's having a great time out there. This week's guest is Glenn Geffner, one of the radio voices of the Miami Marlins, and Glenn is first and foremost a great guy, a good friend of mine, and has always been a great mentor to me. He's a fellow Northwestern alum and a fellow WNUR sports alum. Glenn and I had a great conversation about a number of different things. He's somebody who has worked for the Padres, for the Red Sox, and now for his hometown team in the Marlins. And he was with the Padres when they had Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman. We talk about that. He was with the Red Sox in 2003 and 2004 when they got devastated in the ALCS on the Aaron Boone home run and then broke the curse finally in 2004. He called the 2007 World Series and was there for that. It really was such an interesting time to be in Boston, and now he's with the Marlins. So we talk about all the the different places he's been, his career, his journey to this point, and he is a, a great guy and a really great interview. So I encourage you to listen all the way through, and we'll have that coming up in just a bit. But before we get to the interview with Glenn, I did put out on Twitter and Instagram that I would take your questions on baseball, broadcasting, sod poodles, padres, life, romance, whatever you want to ask me about, and I'd answer them on the podcast. So we'll get to those now. And first question is from Ed Crandall, who is a big Sod Poodles fan, comes to nearly every game, listens all the time. So, Ed, I look forward to talking to you again in 2020. And Ed's question is, has any decision been made regarding an electronic strike zone at the AA level? Well, Ed, I don't know anything more than what we already know and what's been reported, which is that we know they use the electronic strike zone in some capacity in the Independent Atlantic League this year. They also used it, I know, in the Arizona Fall League over the last couple of months. I did see an interview with Rob Manfred where he talked about, and I think maybe this is what you're referring to, bringing at some levels an electronic strike zone to minor league baseball, to affiliated ball in 2020. I'll be honest, I have not heard or read anything about it coming to AA or what levels that would be, but obviously this is something that Major League Baseball is considering, and it's something that's been talked about for some time now. I I alluded to it on episode one when I talked to Mike Farron. I don't know if I'm a fan of it or not. On one hand, you want to get calls right, and I can see from the player perspective how consistency is important. But on the other hand, I am somebody who likes the human element of the game and umpiring and wants to keep some of that. And we already have replay for all these other plays. Um, I'm not sure uh, how I feel about it yet until I can really see the technology and honestly see it in games that I call and how it affects the game day to day. I think it's just really hard to judge until we can see that. But obviously it's something that Uh, Might be coming to Major League Baseball sooner rather than later. Uh, But unfortunately, Ed, I don't have uh, any more info for you other than what's been uh, reported already that maybe it's something they try at certain levels of the minor leagues, but I've not heard anything about it coming to AA specifically. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Next question is from Not Mr. Moon on Twitter, and the question is, which is more fun to call, infield plays, bunts, and base running, or the long ball? Well, I would say every play is different, and that's one of the beauties of broadcasting baseball is that you could call a diving play in the outfield, a strikeout, a home run, a big triple that scores runs all in one inning. That is one of the beauties, I think, of of calling baseball is that you have all these different plays to call, and it's so wide-ranging. I would say out of this list, no doubt calling a home run is the most fun. There are not many more fun things to call than calling a big home run 
in a big moment. But I do like the others. I mean, a good infield play defensively is great. That can be a great moment to call. Base running when, you know, you have the bases loaded and there's a triple down the line or in the alley and you have runners going all the way around and it's a huge moment. That can be awesome as well. But I think out of this list, the home run, especially late in a game in a big moment, is the most fun. And uh, not Mr. Moon. Appreciate the question very much. Final question is from Sean Teeman on Twitter, and Sean has a really good one. His question is, what can baseball do, if anything, to attract new and younger fans to the game that don't have parents or other family members to show them the way? I personally think this is a major issue for the sport long term. Well, Sean, first, thank you for the question, and I think you're 100% spot on. I think it is one of the biggest issues facing baseball moving forward in the next decade or two. And I think it's easy to see the reason why. The reality is that we are living in a world, whether it's my generation, the millennials, or the generations below me and that are to come, that are living in this very fast-paced, social media-obsessed, short attention span world. And the reality is that baseball is a very slow, methodical game that takes two and a half, three hours to play, normally even longer, And that's sort of the reality. So um, I I don't know that I have a great answer for what specifically they can do. I know that other sports, the NFL, the NBA, they do a great job of marketing their players and letting you see the content on social media. I know there's been certain instances in the past where Major League Baseball is very Uh, controlling about what video and what content can be shared on YouTube and all these different social media platforms. I just think in this world, even these small little clips and these pieces of content, they need to be as accessible as possible. And the same thing goes with MLB TV and these blackout rules. Like, in my opinion, if I'm sitting in Chicago, there's no reason that I should not be able to watch the Cubs game On my phone, there should be no blackouts. And I know a lot of people have problems with that. So I think from an accessibility standpoint, it just needs to be super accessible. I I don't want to talk too much about this because it's something that Glenn Geffner and I actually talked about towards the end of our conversation. I asked him about the Marlins attendance and their popularity and, and kind of baseball in general. And he had a really good answer about baseball's popularity and its attractiveness Uh, to younger fans, and and kind of the same sort of issues that you're talking about. So he had a really good answer. I want you to hear his answer, uh, but certainly, no doubt, Sean, it is a very, very big issue facing the game. So without further ado, let's get into this week's conversation with one of the Marlins radio voices, Glenn Geffner. You can find Glenn on Twitter at Glenn Geffner, G-L-E-N-N, G-E-F-F-N-E-R. Glenn is also on Instagram. He's at Glenn underscore Geffner. He is a great guy, super knowledgeable about the game. He's worked for the Padres, for the Red Sox, and now for his hometown Marlins. We talk about a ton of different stuff, and I really think you'll enjoy it with Glenn. So here is Glenn Geffner. Glenn, let's start with what's going on this week, the winter meetings in San Diego, a place where you spent quite a bit of time. I got asked a lot the last few months from different broadcasters coming up through the business about going to the winter meetings and what you can get out of it. Now, the funny thing is, is that you went to the winter meetings 30 years ago this year looking for a job. So first question, what were the winter meetings like and what was it like looking for a job at the winter meetings 30 years ago? Well, first, Sam, I've heard every episode of the podcast, so it's an honor to be with you here uh, on number three today. Uh, Thanks for having me on. But you're exactly right. 1989 was my senior year at Northwestern. And in December of 1989, I flew down to Nashville hoping to land a job as a broadcaster in minor league baseball. Uh, And I can tell you the winter meetings 30 years ago were a lot different than they are today. It seemed at the time as though there were a lot of job seekers down there. Uh, but you didn't have nearly as many as you have now, and you didn't have the organization that you have now through uh, the organized employment operation they have down there. So what I had done and what to this day I recommend people do is you got to reach out to people in advance and let them know you're going to be down there uh, because even then it seemed like a lot of jobs were filled or people were pretty far down the line before the winter meetings came. 
And there are so few broadcasting jobs, especially, and so many people pursuing those jobs that unless you have cracked the door just a little bit and somebody knows to be looking for you down there, it may be a lot of money spent and uh, not a whole lot of reward on the back end. But uh, I'll never forget it going down to Nashville. Actually, I was a senior at Northwestern with Josh Lewin, who uh, has gone on to a tremendous career in broadcasting. Uh, the two of us were down there. Josh already had a job because Josh had grown up in Rochester, New York and uh, had been doing some broadcasting for the Red Wings, even when he was in college in the summers. And, and that year, the lead broadcaster left Rochester. He stepped right into the number one job right out of college. Uh, I was looking for a job and actually had uh, planned things in my college timing to graduate a quarter early so I could start a job at the very end of winter quarter in time for opening day. I was actually offered two jobs at the winter meetings, but both of them wanted me to start January 1st. And I had to turn them down. I just wasn't going to be that close to the end of four years at Northwestern and walk away without a diploma. So I turned down two jobs, left the winter meetings without anything starting around opening day until I got a call from Josh and got an internship in Rochester. So I was able to start out in AAA, not broadcasting initially, but uh, you know, as you go down the line from day one to now here I am 30 years later, a lot of it is who you know. And uh, when somebody has an opening and they know that you might be able to fill that position, uh, it helps to be in the right place at the right time. So that was how the door got cracked for me. It was a great experience going to the winter meetings. And like I said, I got a couple of offers out of it, which in hindsight really is pretty remarkable, I think. But uh, I didn't leave the winter meetings with my first job in baseball. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's pretty much the same now. I'm not going this year and I haven't gone in a couple of years, but the one piece of advice that I gave everybody I talked to, and if you're listening to this at the winter meetings by chance and you still have some time, this would be my advice, and I think you'll agree. And it has changed a little bit now with the way the broadcasting jobs are posted, and in reality there's maybe, I don't know, seven or eight broadcasting jobs that are there total. But if you're listening to this at the winter meetings, do not just hang around at that job fair and get discouraged if you're not getting interviews and you're not going to come away with a job. It is about so much more than that. I met so many good people, uh, people like Casey Stern, plenty of others who, who have had really big influences on me. And I think that's like what it's really all about. And, and I'm curious to know, was it as cool of an experience, Glenn, as it is today? Because when I went the last couple of times, you know, what I found is it's just really cool. Like the people you can meet, there's really no boundaries about where you can go and what you can see. And you'll see GMs and agents and media people and Ken Rosenthal, like walking around all over the place. And you can really see it all. And if you want, go up and talk to anybody. And uh, it's like, it's just a really cool thing to be a part of, I've, I've always thought. No question. And having been back to winter meetings for various reasons over the years, uh, with some regularity, uh, I've watched the winter meetings evolve. In 1989, they were not the big media extravaganza that they've become. This is before the internet. This is before the MLB network, certainly. Uh, so ESPN was there, and you had a, a beat writer or two for a lot of major league cities. But more than anything, you had front office executives, and uh, you had major league people, minor league people, all in the same place at the same time. And I know in my experience, having gone back many times as somebody with a job and maybe as somebody who other people are looking to connect with, uh, it, you love that when somebody comes up to you and introduces themselves and says, hey, how do I get my foot in the door? Do you have any ideas, any advice? And uh, I can't say that 100% of the people you walk up to will feel the exact same way. And maybe at some point you catch somebody at the wrong time and he's in a rush to get somewhere. But uh, for the most part, just like you said, don't be shy about going up and introducing yourself to somebody, a, a major league front office executive, a minor league person, a scout, a media member. You just never know uh, what relationship might be the relationship that helps you get your foot in the door. And getting your foot in the door is the hardest part, as we all have experienced over the years. Once you get your foot in the door, if you do good work, you're going to have a chance to advance and you're going to meet people along the way who are going to give you those opportunities. So. Uh, Whatever it is, you go down there, be aggressive. Don't don't be a jerk. But uh, if you have a chance to walk up and say hello to Kevin Millar when he's walking off the MLB network set, do it. And uh, you never know what might come out of something like that. Uh, let's switch gears. You grew up in South Florida. So I want to ask you this. If you would have told that kid that you'd now be a broadcaster for your hometown team, what would that kid say? 
Well, considering the fact that my hometown team didn't exist back in 1989, uh, that might not have been the goal. But I'll tell you what, uh, I think it probably would have been uh, good news to me back in 1989. Uh, that was always the dream for me. I grew up in South Florida and from the age of six or seven years old, used to sit in my bedroom like a lot of broadcasters probably tell you and turn the volume down on the TV and, and broadcast games using stats on the back of baseball cards. Uh, I'd wake up every morning before school. I'd run out and get the newspaper. And then I'd wake my parents up by running down what happened in Major League Baseball last night. Uh, Jim Rice hit his 30th home run. And Jerry Remy hit a two-run single in the seventh inning to snap a 4-4 tie as the Red Sox beat the Yankees 8-5 to in the opening game of a three-game series at Fenway. Things like that. Uh, so from a very young age, this was always what I wanted to do. Uh, and I never really realized there was an actual path to get there. Uh, you know, when you're watching games on TV or listening on the radio as a youngster, it, it seems very much out of reach. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get into journalism in high school, uh, got involved in broadcasting from the very beginning of freshman year at Northwestern at the student radio station and had so many incredible opportunities there. So that by the time I graduated, I had an actual tape and I had done baseball games and football games and basketball games and talk shows and uh, reporting from live events and things like that. Uh, and then it's just a matter of getting your foot in the door and doing what you need to do to, to pay the dues along the way. And, uh, what I probably would have told myself looking back at it is enjoy the journey and don't spend too much time worrying about where you're going to be five years from now or 10 years from now or 30 years from now, because you're not going to get there unless you really immerse yourself in what you're doing that day and that year. And unless you're fully invested in the team that you're working with and the people that you're working with and the people you're working for. Uh, and I think in hindsight, I really did conduct myself that way. I don't know that anybody ever gave me that advice, but that's advice I share with a lot of people. Now uh, I've known a lot of people over the years who just spent all their time networking and worrying about the next job and the job after that and making an impression uh, when what you really need to do is just go out and put your head down and do your job today to the best of your ability. And whether you're working in a minor league front office or broadcast or whatever, uh, you've got to know that like players, you never know when you're being scouted and when somebody is going to see you. And that's how I caught a break. Uh, we had the Baltimore Orioles come to Rochester for an exhibition game. And little did I know their head of public affairs was coming to town with the team and and was watching me do my thing as, as the PR director for the team throughout the day and came on the broadcast with me that night. Uh, and next thing I know, I had uh, a friend for life and a very important mentor in my career, Dr. Charles Steinberg, uh, who at one point tried to get me to Baltimore, uh, who eventually I followed to San Diego and, and his group led by Larry Lucchino and with Theo Epstein and Sam Kennedy and people like that. Uh, we all went to Boston later. Uh, and, and to this day, many of those people remain a big part of my life and career. So, uh, you know, if, if you're 21 years old at the winter meetings this week, don't worry about where you're going to be 30 years from now. Worry about getting your foot in the door, putting your head down, doing the best possible work, uh, and realize that you never know when that next opportunity might come calling. But uh, it's more likely probably to come calling for you when you least expect it. At least that was my experience. You've always been a, a great mentor to me, and we've talked a lot about you know, going through the minors and focusing on the work at hand and not worrying about what's next. And I'll be the first one to say I have not always done the best job at that. I've, I've worried about a lot. And, and I think now try to focus more on what I'm doing and being in the present moment and focusing on getting better and that broadcast every night and really just focusing on the things I can control. But you're so right in, in so many ways. Um, that's a good segue into what your experience was like working in the minors in the 90s in Rochester. What was it like for you, I guess, both kind of day by day in what you did, but also your thought process about what you were doing, trying to get to the big leagues, and, and sort of the pressure that that always brings? Well, my role evolved over the course of my time in Rochester. I started out as an unpaid intern in 1990 uh, for a team that didn't have a PR director. So I basically took on all the PR responsibilities as an intern, which meant writing the game notes and uh, writing the media guide and the program and the sales brochures, all, all the uh, things that get printed outside for various purposes by the ball club, uh, coordinating player media interactions. And, and that was the bulk of my job, but I didn't get paid for that part of the job. So what I did to pay my rent was I made mascot appearances as R.W. Homer, the Red Wings mascot at the time. 
which looking back at it, it is a, a story I love to tell. I actually have a picture of R.W. Homer on my phone that when I go out and speak to uh, student groups, I'll often talk about R.W. Homer and starting out and, and being willing to pay your dues. You got to go out and do whatever the heck it takes to get your foot in the door. Uh, you know, I moved to Rochester sight unseen. All that Rochester, New York was to me was a line on the back of Cal Ripken's baseball card when I got there in 1990. I knew nothing about Rochester. Uh, and little did I know that over the course of my years there, I'd make uh, some of my best friends for life. I'd meet my wife there. Uh, you know, to this day, there are people who are still with the Red Wings, including the general manager who I worked with, who are very, very close friends. Uh, but it was just a bunch of young, very hungry men and women who, in the beginning especially, often didn't have significant others and certainly didn't have children. And we just threw ourselves into our work 365 days a year and loved every minute of it. And, and the other thing that made that experience so valuable is we all did so many different things. We all wore a million hats. So I would do the PR. I'd make mascot appearances, like I said. We all sold advertising. Uh, we all made appearances in the community. We were all involved one way or another in community relations. When it came time to pull the tarp, as you know, you go out there, you pull the tarp. And the reason why, to me, that minor league experience is so valuable Everybody wants to start in the major leagues, maybe get a big league internship, but you get to the major leagues, you immediately get pigeonholed and you're a PR intern or you intern in marketing or you intern in sales. Uh, when you're working in the minor leagues, as you know, you're doing everything and you may confirm that you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. You may realize, you know what, I'm just not cut out for this, but I actually enjoy the sales part. And I can't imagine anybody who would feel that way, but uh, there are people who prefer the sales part. Uh, so by doing a lot of different things, not only do you either confirm that it's what you want to do or maybe you realize you want to do something else, but you also just gain a, a broad knowledge and understanding of the business side of baseball and of sports and of the world in general that I think really comes in handy. And some of the lessons I learned, I apply to this day in understanding how a front office operates and what different people's roles are and how different people in an organization can work collaboratively to help each other. And uh, you don't always see that as the case. So uh, they were remarkable years in Rochester. And in fact, you know, I go back to, I mentioned Charles Steinberg's name. I had a couple of opportunities to leave Rochester for jobs in the major leagues, PR jobs at that point, uh, that I turned down. I stayed in Rochester because I was so happy there, really enjoying what I was doing. Uh, after a few years, I became the number two broadcaster. I worked with Josh Lewin, my college friend at that time. Josh left for a job in Baltimore. I took over as a lead broadcaster for the Red Wings. Uh, and was very content there and actually on three different occasions turned down major league opportunities to stay in Rochester the fourth time though I answered the call and went to San Diego. Yeah, it's an amazing thing when you talk about diving into your work and, and you know, I've had the very similar experience of even when I was in indie ball with the Gateway Grizzlies of that environment where everybody's pretty young everybody's for the most part single or dating or whatever and you are just working and it's kind of like this free-for-all and, and it's interesting because you know we as broadcasters whether it's the the minors the majors we do we make decisions like so quick and based on so little like I, I've said this a lot and I said it a lot in interviews when I got down to Amarillo but not once in my thought process when I was interviewing for the Sod Poodles job or thinking about going down to Amarillo, Texas, that I ever think to myself, wow, I've never even been in Amarillo. I don't even know what it's going to be like. Not once did I think about actually what it would be like or, or why I would go to Amarillo. It was just, just the job and the opportunity, and I never thought twice about it. And at, at this stage in your life and career, and at that stage in my life and career, you could do that. And I tell people all the time, you've got to take advantage of these years when all of your belongings fit in the backseat of your car and you can pick up and move at a moment's notice. You know, every time I've moved, it's been a bit more complicated. I, I moved from college to Rochester in the backseat of my car. Uh, I went from Rochester to San Diego with a fiance. Uh, my wife and I left San Diego, went to Boston with one child. We moved from Boston to South Florida with two children. And now we have a third child and a dog. So if there were to be another move, it would be even more complicated. But as the years go on, it gets harder to make those moves and to take some of those chances uh, and in, in some respects to pursue that dream. So you really need to take advantage of these years right out of school. And whatever it takes, be ready to pay some dues and not do it begrudgingly, but really embrace what those years uh, can mean for you. And in all seriousness, I look back at my time in Rochester 
as some of the happiest years of my career. And like I said, to this day, some of those people are my closest friends. Uh, and I know for a fact I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today if it weren't for those years I spent in Rochester. Yeah, you got to dive into it. And and that's what I've I've said to some of the broadcasters who are getting out of college or whatever it might be in the last couple of months. I said it, it's not about the pay. It's not about it being necessarily fair uh, as far as what these jobs entail and what they demand. Uh, but you got to go all in and, and just do it. So I do want to focus on the San Diego part of your career. So let's start with this. What was the moment where you find out you're getting hired by the Padres and what did that feel like? Well, it's funny, as I mentioned, I've been offered three jobs previously, uh, two by the Padres that I turned down initially because I was so content in Rochester. But uh, when my mom kept telling me, hey, at some point they're going to stop calling you. Fortunately, they called back at a point when I was ready to make the move. And it was Uh, At the very end of the 1996 season in Rochester, I had just gotten engaged, and it seemed like the perfect time for my fiancé and me to cross the country and start a new life with the Padres. Uh, The Padres were under relatively new ownership at that point, John Moores and Larry Lucchino. Lucchino had gone from Baltimore to San Diego, took Charles Steinberg, among others, with him. Charles, who had first uh, connected with me when he was in Baltimore, was eager to get me out there to join him. And uh, when we finally decided now is the time, it was kind of, I think, a relief for me and on some levels a relief for them after this pursuit had gone on for a couple of years, and I'm incredibly grateful they stuck with me. Uh, it was pretty cool. My my first day in San Diego, uh, we actually went out for the one and only playoff game the Padres hosted in 1996 when they got swept in the division series by the Cardinals. But our first Padres game was – uh, at what was then Jack Murphy Stadium, sitting right behind the plate, watching the Padres lose game three to the Cardinals. Uh, Dennis Eckersley closing it out for St. Louis. Uh, but at that time, the Padres seemed like a hot team on and off the field. They had come out of the depths of the strike. And at that point, uh, their ownership situation was a mess. And they were last in baseball in revenues and in attendance. Uh, they had the worst record in baseball. But they had a little bit of a core that they built on. And by 96, they won the division. By 97, I was there. Hopes were high in 97. By 98, we're in the World Series. Uh, And so on and off the field, it was a a great franchise to be a part of at that time. And we were really fortunate, uh, not just to get a chance to start out in the big leagues, but to get a chance to begin our major league careers and lives uh, around the kind of people that we did in that front office with Lucchino and Steinberg and Sam Kennedy, Mike D, Theo Epstein, uh, among others. But on the field, when you've got people – like Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman and Ricky Henderson was on that first team. And, and Wally Joyner, uh, Bruce Bochy was our manager. Kevin Towers was our general manager. And I learned so much from those people. And that was a time, you know, almost 25 years ago now where things just seemed to be more relaxed uh, in the clubhouse, on the field, uh, the front offices. And I went out to San Diego, I should mention as the PR director, not to broadcast initially. Uh, so I went out as a public relations director uh, but there was such a connection between the clubhouse and the front office. And it might have even been especially unique and special with that Padres group at that time. But uh, you really got to know these players and their families. And they got to know you and your families. And, and you came to develop great appreciation for all that they've been through to get to where they are. Uh, and then you really marvel at the players like Gwynn and Hoffman on their way to Cooperstown, uh, the way they go about their business. And I learned so much from them right out of the shoot uh, to think that, you know, I was a rookie essentially in the big leagues, but got to spend every day talking, hitting with Tony Gwynn. And I mean, literally every day for the time we were together in San Diego, just listening to Tony, he would do 99.9% of the talking, obviously uh, to talk to Trevor Hoffman, to watch him go about his business on the field, to see what kind of a teammate he was. When you hear people talk about this guy's a great teammate, there's probably no higher compliment a baseball player can pay another one than saying he's a great teammate. To me, Trevor Hoffman was the ultimate teammate when you watch the sacrifices he made for other guys on that team. Uh, and just to be in the middle of that, and to see a, a city embrace the franchise the way San Diego did in 98 when the Padres made the great run to the World Series before losing to the Yankees. Uh, that World Series run got Petco Park built and really saved baseball in San Diego. So it was a very special time to be a part of that franchise. And uh, to think those were my earliest years in the big leagues, and I was really just cutting my teeth 
But uh, I still see a lot of guys from those teams and people from that front office. Uh, and we all talk about it, no matter what we've all gone on to do since, uh, those were a lot of people's favorite years in baseball and, and the way that group came together. So it was a very special way for me to start my career uh, in a great city with, with a great group of people and an exciting team for several of those years and to learn from Bruce Bochy, a Hall of Fame manager, to learn from Kevin Towers, some of the guys in the field. Uh, those were great, great years. And ironically, it was cool for me this year because I got a chance to meet Trevor Hoffman when he came to Amarillo, did an interview with him, and, and I'm with you, and I met him very, very briefly, but what a great guy and great personality, great talker. I met Tony Gwynn's son, Tony Jr., and his brother Chris. I did an interview with Chris. He came to Amarillo, so uh, that was a really great experience this year meeting some of those people. I want to talk a little bit more about Trevor Hoffman, and you've told me before about what a great guy he is, and, and everything he meant to you and that team at the time. When you talk about him sacrificing for that team, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, Trevor's a guy, you know, first of all, he, he broke into baseball as a shortstop. A lot of people forget that. Uh, he signed with the Reds coming out of the University of Arizona as a shortstop uh, and didn't hit, and pitching coach Mike Griffin in the minor leagues thought, you know, this guy's got a really good arm. Uh, let's see what he can do on the mound. And it's easy to say the rest is history, but Trevor Hoffman, when he was taken by the Marlins in the expansion draft in 93, and when he debuted in the big leagues as a Marlin, got his first couple of saves as a Marlin in 93, was a guy throwing 97, 98 miles per hour. Uh, he was traded to San Diego in the middle of that 93 season for Gary Sheffield, part of what was a, a fire sale trade uh, on the Padres. And they end up with a Hall of Famer, Trevor Hoffman, and a face of the franchise kind of guy, an all-time face of the franchise. Uh, Hoffie got hurt during the strike in 1994. Uh, I believe the story is there was some surfing going on and a shoulder injury. And all of a sudden after the strike, the velocity wasn't there and he had to reinvent himself as a pitcher. Uh, when he came back, he had tremendous success with that changeup. Uh, but there is nobody who spent more time with young players, with teammates, uh, pregame, making it fun. Hey, you know, without saying we got to get out there and do our work He'd be the guy grabbing a football. Hey, let's go out and throw the football around. You're getting your running in. We don't even realize you're getting your running in. Uh, I've never seen anybody as much success as he had, even the best, even Hoffie, even Rivera, every now and then would have an off night. Uh, I've never seen a guy handle failure better than Trevor Hoffman. He'd be the first guy at his locker. And I'm talking about after blowing a save in the World Series. Trevor Hoffman's the first guy at his locker to answer every question. And, and that's the sort of thing that rubs off on every player around him. And uh, Matt Clement was traded from the Padres to the Marlins and started to wear number 51 for Trevor Hoffman. And every time I see a pitcher wearing number 51 to this day, I think there's got to be a Trevor Hoffman connection. And I'll often ask them if there is, because one way or another, Hoffman really impacted and influenced a lot of people. Uh, Cole Hamels with a great changeup, grew up in San Diego. And he'll tell you, he used to sit in the upper deck at Jack Murphy Qualcomm Stadium watching Trevor Hoffman. Uh, so Hoffman was such a unique guy who was so giving of his time, of his service in the community, uh, and so good. With him and Tony, you know, it's you got Hall of Fame players who are even better human beings, and that rubbed off on everybody around them. So it was really a privilege to be around those guys. Yeah, talking with Chris, Tony's brother, over the summer, I mean, I, I heard so many great stories about Tony, and I feel like now being a part of the Padre system and, and talking with some of those people, you hear so many just amazing, funny, incredible, one-of-a-kind stories about Tony Gwynn. Do you have one personally in your interactions with Tony that you like to talk about? I'm not sure there's one specific story. There are a couple of things that stand out and actually talk about being in the Padres organization now. Uh, when you go to spring training every year, you generally get one day off in spring training every single spring on the big league side and year after year after year, Tony spent that one day off on the minor league side. He didn't uh, sleep all day or go out with his family. Uh, he'd go over on the minor league side and, and he'd talk to the players. He'd, uh, you know, talk hitting. If they want to talk hitting, he'd talk about how you get to the big leagues, what it means to be a big leaguer, what it means to wear the San Diego Padres uniform specifically. Uh, he, he'd watch guys, he'd offer encouragement, but that's the kind of guy he was. And even at that time, you had a sense that when he retired, he was going to stay in the game. Uh, he could have been a major league manager probably if he wanted to be. He could have certainly been a big-time broadcaster had he chosen to be, but he chose to go back to his alma mater, San Diego State, and be a teacher and, and work with young players. 
Uh, and that's the guy I always saw who oftentimes wouldn't seek somebody out. But if you came to him, he'd talk to you all day. Uh, I remember going down to Culiacan, Mexico one day during spring training one year with Tony Gwynn and Rod Carew, for what was billed as the world's greatest hitting clinic. Uh, you had 15 batting titles between the two of them, eight for Tony and seven for Carew. And we flew down on John Moore's private plane and uh, watching Tony not being able to speak the language, but being able to communicate with those kids in Mexico and teach them lessons that I'm sure to this day, uh, many of them remember. And you never know who in that group might be in the big leagues even today. And so a few years ago in San Diego, when they named the batting championship, now the Gwyn Carew batting title, uh, you know, to have spent that day with those two guys down in Mexico, something I'll never forget. Uh, but with Tony, the first thing I always think about is the laugh. He had that unbelievable laugh. Uh, very distinctive. I know people who use that laugh as their ringtone on their telephone to this day. Uh, Tony, who would sit and talk good days and bad days. Uh, the best conversation would awfully start with, I ain't got nothing to say today, but I'll tell you this. And then 30 minutes later, he'd be done. Uh, he was just so remarkable. He loved to share what he knew about hitting. Uh, there were young players who were often reluctant to approach him. I'll tell you two very quick stories. Juan Pierre was one of those guys. When Juan Pierre broke in with the Rockies, uh, he was a huge Tony Gwynn fan. And in some respects, a similar type hitter as Tony. Uh, and at the time I was doing PR for the Padres and the Rockies PR guy came to me and said, hey, Juan Pierre would love to meet Tony Gwynn. Can you help me set that up? And I told Tony, and Tony said, hey, he wants to talk to me. Tell him he can come find me. And, uh, and that wasn't Tony being a jerk, but that was Tony saying, hey, you got to put in a little bit of effort here. And so one day, Juan Pierre waited for Tony in the players' parking lot after a game in San Diego. And I've talked to JP about this over the years since, because I work with Juan Pierre down with the Marlins now. Uh, and Tony stood and talked to him for about two hours. And they started a friendship that day. Uh, there was a day we were actually in Miami. I was a Padre. We were playing the Marlins. And it was the day that the Marlins introduced their number one pick, Josh Beckett. And the Padres PR guy, or the Marlins PR guy, came up to me and said, hey, Josh would love to get Tony Gwynn to sign a bat for him. And I asked Tony, he said, hey, you tell him to get over here. And so we brought Josh Beckett over, and Josh very sheepishly, maybe the last sheepish thing Josh Beckett ever did in his life, very sheepishly approached Tony Gwynn and, and introduced himself and told him who he was. And I think Tony signed a ball for him that day and said, hey, the first time you strike me out in the big leagues, I'll sign a bat for you. And uh, I would imagine at some point Beckett might have gotten Tony. I'm not certain. But uh, that was the kind of guy Tony was. He was so much fun to be around. And if you wanted to learn from him, he was more than happy to teach. And I got a very similar vibe from his brother, Chris, when I met him this summer. In fact, Chris, the reason he was down in Amarillo is because he has a friendship, a mentorship with Buddy Reed, one of the outfielders in the Padres organization. And, and they've connected uh, and he's been a mentor to Buddy. So that that relationship building and that mentorship and wanting to work with young players, it, it appears to be something that really uh, permeates throughout that Gwyn family, which is uh, which is really really cool. You mentioned you had the chance to meet Tony Junior, uh, who to this day, when I talk to Tony Junior, I hear his dad. He sounds so much like his father. But I remember watching Tony Junior when he was nine, ten, eleven years old, taking batting practice under his dad's watchful eye pregame. Uh, and I've told Tony this a couple of times in recent years since we lost his dad. Uh, that to this day, as a broadcaster, I hear his father's words coming out of my mouth. Uh, maybe not every single night, but I'll bet you five nights out of seven. Something that Tony Gwynn said to me 20 or more years ago comes back out of the recesses of my mind and comes out of my mouth. Uh, and it still makes sense. And, and it still helps to put the game into perspective or, or to help explain something happening on the field. He was that kind of a teacher. Uh, and I learned more baseball from Tony Gwynn than from anybody I've ever been around. I do want to get to your time with the Red Sox in a second. But I do want to go back to one thing you were talking about in regards to being around that Padres clubhouse and what it was like then. As far as the, the clubhouse and it being a different time and, and almost a more relaxed time uh, around, I guess, players and, and things like that, um, how do you think that's changed now working in the game in 2019? It's changed a lot. And, you know, no two clubhouses are exactly the same. So I can't speak for every clubhouse in baseball. Uh, but, but when we talk to people at other clubs, we generally hear the same sort of thing. What you've seen happen over the years is, one, with all the new ballparks, clubhouses have gotten a lot bigger. So there are a lot of places for players to hide if they want to hide. 
uh, and not make themselves as available as maybe in the old days where you had no choice but to sit in your locker all the time. And if you're going to have something to eat, you're going to have something to eat right in the middle of the clubhouse. Uh, and as the clubhouses have gotten bigger, so has the media horde. And so have the demands put on players. Uh, and while the vast majority of them are really good about doing whatever people ask them to do or whatever th they need to do, uh, there is, and it's different from market to market, but there are pressures now that didn't exist on players 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And on good days, on bad days, uh, every now and then uh, a guy just wants a day off and, and doesn't want to be bothered. So uh, I think doing what I do, I've learned to pick my spots and, and you learn to try to balance it out a little bit and not go to the same guy day after day. Uh, you know, it can be tough in what we've had in Miami in recent years, some very tough seasons. It can be tough to almost not ask the same question day after day when you know what the answer is going to be and when there just is almost no other question to ask unless you get very creative. So it's just different. And a lot of it is just the way the media has grown. And uh, with the internet, with cable TV, with the number of people in clubhouses, I think also what you see is the media is skewing much younger now than it did previously. Uh, and because of that, uh, you have a lot of media members not with as much experience as, as you had at one time. And maybe not uh, because of that with as much tact and maybe not knowing how to ask a question uh, you know, two people can ask the same question two very different ways and get two very different answers and, and maybe get a really good answer or maybe tick somebody off by the way you ask that question. So as the media skews younger and you've got bloggers and, and websites and things like that uh, in clubhouses and on the field, it can be smothering and suffocating for a lot of players. So uh, th there just seems to be, in my experience, not everywhere, not with everybody, but there's a little bit more of an edge to players these days. Uh, and it's not quite the, the casual, comfortable, familial feel that I remember going back to the mid-90s in San Diego. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that that relationship with the media because I never had an experience in a big league clubhouse until I got the chance to do it a couple of times when I was working for the Astros. And it's funny because I've, I've told a lot of people that it's really, until you see it, it's really a hard dynamic to explain when there's media availability and what that is like in the clubhouse. You basically have this uh, you know, horde of reporters and media people standing in the middle of this enormous clubhouse with players going about their business, playing cards or getting dressed or talking on the phone or whatever it might be. It's just this really interesting dynamic. And sometimes you'll see people go up to a player and they don't want to talk. Or sometimes you'll see one media member go up to a player and, and they talk and then everybody goes over. But it, it's kind of, it's a really, really fascinating dynamic I found that I had really no idea about until I saw it for the first time. But it's, it's almost hard to explain how how kind of, uh, in a sense, I guess, uh, interesting it is. In a way, I think a lot of people feel like they're kind of walking on eggshells in there. Here's the bottom line for me. I respect the clubhouse. I respect the clubhouse is the player's domain. It's their office. Uh, it's not my office. My, my thought has always been I go in there when I need something, I get what I need, and I don't just loiter around. I'm not going to be one of the 50 people just standing there watching the ball game that's on TV in the middle of the clubhouse. Uh, I get what I need and I get out of there. Uh, and I think players probably appreciate that. But uh, yeah, there's a time and a place for everything. And players understand they're going to have to answer questions at certain times. But uh, the demands on them today are so much more than they ever were before. And I think that's led to this changing dynamic a little bit. But again, you go back to the San Diego years. When you've got guys like Trevor and Tony setting the tone in a clubhouse, that's going to be a good clubhouse. And the clubhouses to this day that have players like that who set that kind of a tone, I think will generally be better clubhouses than some others. And just one more point on, on that about the relationship with the players. And I've said this to people in the minor leagues, and you know this, I'm sure working in Rochester, it's a little bit different in the sense that, yeah, you keep that professional relationship with them, but the relationship is almost a little bit different too, because you, you know, no matter what happens, you get on the bus and you ride 14 hours together and you get out of the gas station and go get snacks. And it's, it's just this uh, very different dynamic between being a professional and covering the team, but also kind of being part of the team as well. So it's, I, I just find the dynamic both in the majors and the minors always uh, really intriguing and, uh, and interesting to see how different people go about it. Uh, let's transition to your time with the Red Sox. You joined them in 2003, which is obviously 
a really interesting time to be with the Red Sox because they have a devastating end to the season in 03. They make the huge comeback in the ALCS in 04, go to win the World Series for the first time in 86 years. What was that time like with the Red Sox? I was there for five seasons from 2003 through 2007, and I always tell people I was there for the perfect five years because as awful as the end of 2003 was with Aaron Boone hitting the extra inning home run to win game seven of the ALCS, that was the ideal indoctrination into the Red Sox for me uh, to have had a great year, but to have had your heart absolutely ripped out of your chest in extra innings in game seven at Yankee Stadium. Uh, now I knew what it really meant to be a Red Sox. It wasn't a matter of just reading Dan Shaughnessy's Curse of the Bambino or knowing my baseball history. Now I, I had lived Bucky Dent personally. I'd been a part of all that stuff. Uh, and then that made 2004 even sweeter when uh, the Red Sox did what they were able to do against the Yankees coming back from three games to none down to win the ALCS, having lost game three at Fenway 19-8, to eight, uh, and then going into Yankee Stadium uh, and, and winning the last two games of the series after they'd come back in games four and five at Fenway. Uh, it was absolutely remarkable. And what everybody forgets, it's almost like you talk about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Everybody remembers beating the Soviet Union, but that wasn't for the gold medal. Team USA had to come back and beat Finland on a Saturday morning to win the gold medal after they had beaten the Soviets. Uh, the Red Sox still had to go beat the Cardinals, a really good Cardinals team in the World Series that year. And they swept them four straight, never trailed for an inning in that World Series. Uh, and to me, that says as much about that team that they were able to put what happened in the ALCS behind them and move on and take care of business in the World Series as much as anything. Remember, after the Yankees beat the Red Sox dramatically in 03 on the Boone home run, they then lost the World Series to the Marlins. And uh, a lot of people forget that as well. Josh Beckett, the hero uh, for the Marlins in that World Series. But uh, what the Red Sox were able to do against the Cardinals was every bit as impressive in some respects as that comeback. But to see what that meant, not just to the city or to the state or even to the region of New England, but to Red Sox fans across the nation and around the world, uh, being a part of the 4 Magic a very small part of it uh, is something that will never be matched or surpassed in my career. Certainly, uh, you know, seeing people rushing to cemeteries to to talk to their father or their grandmother or whoever it was who never lived to see this day after 86 years, the Red Sox have finally won the World Series. Uh, we flew home after winning Game Four in St. Louis and landed right in the middle of rush hour the following morning in Boston. And from the second we stepped off the plane with the thousands of people at the airport to the ride back to Fenway Park uh, with every overpass full of people and signs and hawking horns and helicopters flying overhead uh, to the parade that we had a few days later through the streets of Boston and through the Charles River on the duck boats. Uh, that was an absolute once in a forever experience. Uh, and again, you remember the people you got to go through something like that with and personalities like David Ortiz and Kevin Millar and some of those people. Doug Mankiewicz, uh, who caught the last out, was a, a young man I had known since he was a kid. He played Little League ball with my brother here in Miami. So he's the guy who catches the last out in that World Series. Uh, it was a very, very special time. Uh, then you see 05 and 06, kind of a little bit of a step back, a little bit of a hangover maybe, and then to come back and do it again in 07. Uh, when, when the Reds have talked about, hey, anybody can win one World Series, but it takes something, somebody special to win a couple. And they came back in 07, did it again, and they've won two more since then. But uh, 03 and 04 really are the two years that stand out in my time in Boston. And to see what a phenomenon the Red Sox became, not just uh, in, in baseball, but outside with, with Barbara Walters coming in and doing stories and the Today Show and uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And you name it, the Red Sox were everywhere across the country, internationally. Uh, it was a very special time to be there, and I wouldn't trade a second of those years. But at the same time, uh, I tell people Boston can age you in dog years. And uh, when the opportunity came to return to my hometown, it felt like it was the right move to make. I'm so happy we had this conversation because, you know, in, in my years now of knowing you, going back to when I was at Northwestern, you know, I've, I've always known you – with the Marlins. I don't know that we've, in all our talking, that we've ever talked about this stuff with the Padres specifically and with the Red Sox and what it was like to call those moments. And I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking, 
like, wow, Glenn has called a lot of big games and a lot of big, big, big moments in the history of franchises. So I'm, I'm curious to know, because this has only, I think, really happened to me once, and it happened this season when the Sod Poodles were in the championship and they had an unbelievably dramatic run and moment and decisive Game 5 in the championship series where for the first time in my career, I felt jittery and nervous and almost out of breath in some of these moments because of how big they felt. And that's at the double-A level. So I'm I'm curious, do you, did you in these moments, and maybe it was different at different points of your career, did you get jittery? Did you get nervous? I mean, how do you go about calling those types of games and those types of atmospheres and environments? Well, to be clear, in 04, I was the vice president of communications for the Red Sox. I was the head of PR in 04. I wasn't broadcasting in 04. I was in 07, and in 07, I was working with Joe Castiglione, the Red Sox Hall of Fame broadcaster, hopefully a baseball Hall of Fame broadcaster soon. He's a finalist for the Frick Award again this year. Uh, so Joe Castiglione called the last out of the ninth inning in Denver when the Red Sox won the World Series. I was actually down in the clubhouse getting ready for the postgame celebration. But you do get a little bit jittery. And I think back to the moments before game one of the World Series at Fenway in 07 uh, and, and the realization. You talked in the beginning about that kid at the winter meetings in Nashville back in 1989 uh, that this is the culmination for me, getting a chance to call a World Series at Fenway Park. Uh, it, it was one of those moments uh, where I'm glad I stopped and looked around and uh, tried to file away the sounds and the smells and the feelings. And I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. That's another thing I, I tell people, uh, whatever they do in sports, but particularly in broadcasting, every now and then, it's one thing to get caught up in the moment, but at the same time, it's almost good to step back for a second and look around. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Megan O'Brien from Northwestern, who works for the Patriots. I remember having this conversation with her before her first Super Bowl with the Patriots. And, hey, at some point during all the insanity, just take a look around and, and make a, a mental snapshot of what you're a part of right now and, and realize how far you've come and how special it is to be a part of something like this. So, um it's something that to this day I actually try to do every night during a random regular season game in a 105 loss season for the Marlins every night during the national anthem, I stand still and I look around and I think about where I am and how fortunate I am to be where I am and how this really is uh, a dream come true for a kid who grew up in South Florida, you know, hoping he could do this one day. And uh, I think it's important. Uh, you, you do get jittery. Uh, at times, I remember most recently, I think I called Ichiro's 3,000th hit a few years ago. And so, you know, a guy's coming to the plate at 29.99. You know, this has a chance to be history. Uh, and, and I think you just you just need to relax and, and you need to breathe and you need to think about uh, just doing what you would normally do. Uh, I'm not one who was ever prepared a call for a certain situation. Uh, some people like to write things out. I'd rather the moment speak for itself. Uh, but I, I think those jitters that you talk about are, are one of the really cool parts about it. And it shows how in the moment you are. And uh, that's good. I think the day you stop getting those jitters is maybe the day you should look for something else to do. Finally, before I let you go, um, you know, I, I talked with Mike Ferrin in episode one about baseball's popularity and especially amongst younger people. And I know uh, that through some of the Marlins' tougher seasons, uh, you've had certain thoughts that you've put out on, on Twitter. I remember uh, earlier in 2019, you know, you, you talked quite a bit about it, about uh, the popularity and attendance and things like that. So I guess maybe both in a, in a Marlins point of view, but also maybe a more macro baseball point of view, as far as popularity and attracting fans to the game, as somebody who's around Major League Baseball every day and you cover it from a media perspective every day, Glenn, what are some of the biggest issues you think that this game has right now? The Miami situation is very unique and, and very different uh, and maybe not of a ton of interest maybe to a lot of your listeners. Uh, so I'm going to go more big picture, Major League Baseball. Uh, I'm somebody who loves being at the ballpark. You don't hear people complain that a movie took too long. You know, why was I in the theater for three hours? That should have been two, two hours, 18 minutes instead. 
Uh, but baseball, you hear people talking about the length of games. Uh, I'm not one who, for the longest time, bought into that necessarily. I have, though, come around in the last couple of years on the pace of play. I really do think the pace of play is an issue for Major League Baseball. Uh, the three true outcomes, walks, strikeouts, home runs, uh, the amount of time you can go between balls being put in play in a Major League Baseball game. I come back time and time again to a first inning in Milwaukee in 2018, a Marlins-Brewers game. First inning took 36 minutes to play, and there were four balls put in play. You had walks, strikeouts, hit batsmen, four balls in play in a 36-minute period, one every nine minutes. That's boring, and I love the game. But if I could have walked out or changed the channel, I would have changed the channel or walked out. Uh, that's just not good for baseball. Uh, you need the ball in play. You need action. Uh, you know, nobody goes to football games watching to, to watch the teams huddle up. They want to see something happen on the field. And uh, you got to find a way to have the ball in play more frequently. And in my opinion, the easiest thing you can do is have the umpires call more strikes. And, and if you enlarge the strike zone just a little bit and hitters know that that's what the deal is, you got to go up there and swing the bat. And you're not waiting till it's three and one, or you're not trying to draw a walk in a certain spot. You know, you need to get up there and be aggressive and swing the bat. When umpires call more strikes, you have more balls in play. The game moves faster. And to me, that's more enjoyable to watch in the ballpark or on television. Uh, I think for fans watching on TV, I've been a proponent, and I know this is a financial issue. People will tell you, but I think there's a way around it. Uh, if you cut 30 seconds off of every inning break and replace that one commercial with some in-game advertising on the screen or behind the plate or on the field. You know, you play an entire half of the World Cup without a single commercial break. In baseball, you have 18 commercial breaks, 18 chances to change the channel, 18 chances to decide you've had enough for tonight. Uh, if you just shorten those breaks by 30 seconds and give the sponsor something of value in a different way, that's going to cut nine minutes off of every game. It's going to help a little bit. Uh, I hate the late start times for postseason games. Uh, I have a hard time staying up till the end. I'm not getting up to go to work the next day, but I have a hard time staying up till the end of a lot of postseason games. And my kids have no chance of watching the most important games of the year. They've got school in the morning. So I just think we're really taking a whole generation of fans out of the game at a time when uh, we can't afford to do that. And the fan base is skewing older year after year after year. You've got to find a way. I don't think the way to do it is necessarily with the loudest music, or, or with sound effects or crazy graphics and stuff. I think uh, you go out of your way to really introduce people to the players in this game. You need stars. We're happy to be out there uh, on TV, in the community, uh, showing people that, hey, we're one of you. You know, you don't have to be six foot 11 to play Major League Baseball. You don't have to, you know, be six, seven and run a four, four, 40 like you do in the NFL if you're an office, you know, to, to play Major League Baseball. A lot of baseball players look like me and you or at least like me, you know, you look better, but uh, you know, a lot of baseball players are people that you can relate to as a young fan. And uh, you know, we all play the game in our backyard or in little league or whatever. Uh, but I think we've got to do a better job of, of getting people out uh, and, and really having young fans embrace the stars of the game today. I, I don't feel like baseball does that as well as the NFL or the NBA does that, especially and uh, anything we can do to improve the pace of play, I think is going to help at a certain point. But uh, it, there's great challenges. This is a, a very interesting time in baseball's history. Uh, still, you look at minor league baseball, major league baseball, you have hundreds of millions of people watching baseball in person and on TV and listening on the radio. Uh, some of the reports of baseball's demise are a little bit unfounded, in my opinion. But there are things we can do to make the game a little quicker, uh, and a little bit more enjoyable, and I hope that uh, they're moving in that direction. Yeah, and I'm with you because just like you, I love the game, and I'll be the first one to say that at times it's excruciatingly boring. Like, <laughs> you know, it it is, and uh, there are there are times even, and I'm sure you feel like this sometimes. We we are very lucky in the jobs we have and what we can do in just going to the ballpark every day and watching baseball for a living. But there are times where I sit there and I say, this is, I mean, this like isn't fun. It's, it's, it's so slow or so boring or whatever the situation might be or why the game is like that. So I'm with you. And also from the, the perspective of the start times, I mean, I remember this postseason, uh, the game where the Nationals came back on Kershaw and the Dodgers. I missed it. I fell asleep. 
And if I'm falling asleep and I love it and I love watching it, you know, I think to myself, I can only imagine somebody how somebody feels who is not nearly as passionate about it or wants to watch it as badly as I do. So um, I'm with you. It's a, a very interesting time uh, for the game, and, and hopefully we find ways to uh, to improve it and, and make it more attractive to uh, whoever those groups are that uh, that are most important. Uh, but Glenn, appreciate you coming on. Uh, as always, thank you for for all the insight, and you've been a, a tremendous mentor and friend to me now for a for a number of years, and have seen me go from Northwestern to all my different jobs, and uh, now to everything I'm doing uh, with Amarillo and beyond. So I appreciate it, and uh, very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on. Great talking to you, Sam. Good luck with the podcast. That'll do it for episode number three. Again, a big thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have questions about baseball, broadcasting, or anything in between, you can always tweet at me at Sammy Lev or hit me up on Instagram, S-A-M-M-Y-L-E-V. You can also email me at Samuel J. Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T, at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Again, if you're enjoying the podcast, feel free to subscribe leave a review, and appreciate all the support. That'll do it for this week. We will talk to you next week. Peace out.